All right, James chapter 5, we have a brief passage here tonight. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. Then we'll back up, set the theme, and start going through these verses here tonight. James chapter 5 and verse number 1. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rest of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Seboth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. Let's have a word of prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, I pray now as we look to the study of your word, I pray, Father, that you please would help me tonight as we look to this text. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help me and would be with me and that we would learn from the word of God and the things from this wonderful treasure of a book that you have given us. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One time a pastor gave a testimony that he was going about his duties and part of that for the day was to go to the hospital and visit a man in his church who was about to undergo a surgery. And the man was somewhat fearful and he said, Pastor, would you please pray for me? He said, this surgery has a lot of risk. They're not really sure what's going to happen or if I'm going to live or not. And he said, Pastor, I'm older now and I've just spent so many years working so hard and I have so many different things that I have piled up that I'm finally ready to enjoy. And I'm just afraid that I'm not going to have that chance to enjoy them Would you please pray for me that this would go well? And the pastor did pray for him, but he said as he left that day and thought about it, the word struck him how that the man's focus was not on the people that he could help, on serving the Lord or on his family, but rather on the fact that it was bothering him so much that he had amassed wealth that he might not be able to enjoy James here adds a warning to all of us who would place too much focus on our riches or place our faith in our riches or have an endless obsession with hoarding them and stacking them together, waiting for the day that we'll be able to use them or else putting our faith in that wealth and our comfort in that wealth rather in the fact that we are the children of God and that God is going to take care of us. A woman asked a financial advisor on the radio one time, she said, well, I just, I'm doing okay. I've got my emergency fund in. I've got my savings account. I got my investments. They're on track, but I still just feel this tension and this frustration and this uneasiness and anxiety. And she, she said, at what point will I get enough that, that I know, at what point will I know that I'm okay? And the man said, when you get to heaven, that's when you know that you will be okay. Part of what we'll talk about here as we look to this text is that wealth is not a sin. 
income is not a sin. It's not wrong to have a lot of things. I personally do not believe that socialism is a biblical form of government. I do not believe that God wants us to focus on what someone else has and being angry that someone has more than me and wanting the government to take away what they have and give it to me. Rather, I believe that there are a lot of good biblical principles involved in capitalism and in working hard and in there being a reward for the person who comes up with the most innovations, for the person who invents the best cell phone, and then they may sell a trillion cell phones. Then everybody looks at them and says, they're they're rich. That's not fair. They're hurting everybody else by having a lot of money. When the reason they have a lot of money is that everybody liked their phone so much and voluntarily went out and bought it and had their life blessed by what someone else did. Amazon certainly comes to mind. The man is rich because we all use it each and every day voluntarily because it gives a good service. Many men in the Bible were wealthy men. We think of King David and Solomon and Job and others in the book of Acts who apparently had a lot of property that they owned and possessions for they were willing and able to sell that property, take it and give it to the church at times when Christians were being persecuted and were being killed. However, the Bible is full of warnings against the dangers of being wealthy. And just because a society is capitalistic does not necessarily mean that everything is going to be great or that those people involved in it cannot still abuse wealth, the power of wealth and the getting of wealth and be in danger of judgment from God. James 5.1, he begins by saying, go to now, ye rich men. At James chapter 4 and verse number 13, he uses that same phrase to kind of pivot what he was talking about and transition. And also when he says, go to now, I believe he's saying, listen up, pay attention, heed my warning. And in that verse, he warns against people who brag about doing what? About going away to such and such a city, living there a year, buying and selling and getting gain. What he was warning against was boasting about future plans. But he used people bragging about how they were going to make money in their endeavors to warn them and remind them that their life is short. It's as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away and that they should not boast of their future plans or of their future plans to make money. Now he uses the same phrase in James chapter 5 and verse number 1. And he says, go to now, ye rich men, ye rich men. We'll see as we continue through this text that we already read a couple of verses that he is addressing, I believe here, the unsaved rich men that were oppressing the saved Jews. Remember, James is written to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. James 1.3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. They were being oppressed. They were being pushed by people from the outside. And James addresses this topic of riches and putting our faith in riches and how we ought to treat people who are rich all along the same theme several times throughout the chapters of this book. In James 1, 9 through 11, he says that the brother who is of low degree should rejoice because eventually God will exalt him. But he that is rich, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, 
he shall pass away. Verse 11 of James chapter 1 says that as the heat burns and withers the grass and it passes away, so too shall the rich man fade in all his ways. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, he addresses the scenario where people are coming into their assembly. People are coming into the meeting place of the church. And sometimes there would come in rich men, and then sometimes there would come in people who were poor. And James warns them, and he says, don't show partiality. Don't take the rich man and say, come here, sit thou at my footstool, take the best seat in the house. And then to the poor man who comes in in vile raiment and say, push him to the back where no one else can see him. No, he warns them that they should not have respect of persons, meaning they should not favorably treat the rich at the expense of treating the poor well also. And he says that if you do that, then you have broken the law. James 2.9. Remember, these are Jews. They are very familiar with the law. And he says if you have partiality, you are breaking the law where God said, Thou art to love thy neighbor as thyself, and love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. But in verse number 6 of James 2, he says this, But ye have despised the poor. They had mistreated poor people among them. Then he says this, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? So he's reminding them, don't put your faith in rich people being on your side. Don't think, well, here comes a wealthy and influential and affluential person. If we make friends with them, perhaps they will help us and deliver us from our persecution. He says, no, remember, the people that are oppressing you are rich men. They're drawing you before the judgment seats and they're blaspheming the name of God. These then, I believe, are the rich men that James is addressing are the ones who are persecuting the church. So he, he just sort of addresses the church and he says, don't show partiality, love the poor, don't show the rich extra favoritism. And then he holds back and a little bit later on turns to remind them, God's going to take care of the people who are oppressing you. God is going to judge those who use their wealth and their position to abuse God's people and to cheat the poor. God will take care of them. In James chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he tells them not to have bitter envying and strife in their hearts. They're not supposed to look at what other people have of their wealth and have bitterness and envy, enviousness and want what other people have. May God help each and every one of us to heed that warning of His Word and not to look at what other people have and to be envious. Rather, be grateful for what God has given you. Allow other people to have what God has given them and trust God with the results. Be happy for other people with what they have. And even if it's evil people, God says over and over again, do not be envious of the wicked. Do not look at people who are living sinfully and yet seem to prosper and think, boy, I wish I could just be like them. Because this living for God is coming with so many burdens and trials and they are having fun. They're doing whatever they want and they seem to be doing just fine. God says, no, do not do that. God is the one who's going to judge them 
God is the one who's going to take care of them. And if we're envious of the wicked, then we're forgetting the biblical truth that this life is just a vapor. And we're not living for the wealth of this present age in which we live. We're supposed to be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven as Jesus commanded us to do. Then in James chapter 4, verse number 3, he rebuked them for asking Amiss, They were asking God things that they may consume it upon their lust. They were desiring for things in their flesh that wasn't really in line with the will of God for them, but they were praying for those things fleshly. And God said, your prayers are not going to be answered. And by the way, oftentimes when we look at other people and begin to make comparisons, that's always unwise. 1 Corinthians says that to look at each other and compare ourselves one to another is not wise. It only leads to dissatisfaction or to pride. It leads us to saying, I wish I had the money they had, or I wish I could do the things they get to do. Or else we look at someone else that we perceive to be worse than us, and we are puffed up with pride. Oftentimes we really don't know what accompanies what that other person has anyway. Sometimes we look at another person and think they've got it way better than me. But if we got the whole picture, we would be more grateful for the lot in life that God has given to each and every one of us. Then in James 4, let me see, verse number 13, he he tells them not to brag about their future plans of buying and selling and getting wealth for they don't even know if they'll have that opportunity, for only God knows the future. Number one from our text here tonight, the miseries that accompany riches. Number one, the miseries that accompany riches. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Not simply because they are rich, but because of how they have handled their wealth. And you can have wealth and possessions and riches and not be miserable or not be in judgment of God if you're a wise steward of it. However, any of us that were to become wealthy, the Bible says there are a set of temptations and potential miseries that come with the fact that we have a lot of money and we have a lot of possessions. Here, James tells the rich men who are living in their comfort while they're cheating other people that rather than being at ease, rather than being proud or boasting, they should weep and howl immediately. They should begin to mourn for the miseries that are to come upon them in the future. Bible commentators have said that much of what James says here in James chapter 5 in the first few verses mirrors that of an Old Testament prophet with which they would be very familiar when Isaiah or Jeremiah or some that we'll look at here in a minute proclaim judgment and they would say, look out, don't be so happy and so smug in where you are. God is coming, judgment will come and one day you will answer to God for what you have done. That's what he's doing. He's calling people to repentance and he says they're in such danger of judgment from God that the appropriate response would be for them to begin to weep and to howl and to repent because miseries are surely coming upon them in judgment for their sin. Verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll come back to James 5 here in just a moment. But if you'd like to follow along, we're going to turn to a few places here in the Gospels. 
But James is mirroring in several places what Jesus has said. And James says, look at your riches. They're going to be corrupted and moth-eaten. In other words, they're not going to last forever. They are very temporary. They cannot deliver you from the judgment of God. Before we get to Matthew 6, I'll read you a couple of verses here where the Bible warns us about desiring riches and about the troubles that can associate them. Proverbs 23.4 says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. So the motive in working should not be to be rich, that we labor with this desire to get wealthy, that that consumes us. I want to be rich. I want to be wealthy. That mindset can often lead to the get-rich-quick schemes that can embarrass us and leave us with nothing. Rather, let us labor, be grateful for what God gives us, and if God were to give us a million or a hundred million or a trillion dollars, we would not necessarily be in sin, but there would come a, a place where we could just say, why are we going more and more and more to get more and get more and get more, especially if it was all simply for ourselves? The man with a trillion dollar net worth would have plenty of money to own a huge house, go on vacations that we could never dream about, but still percentage-wise allocate his money and stuff that he could never use to the cause of Christ, to the kingdom of God, and he could use it to be a blessing. But our motivation in laboring should not be to be rich. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be wealthy. Everybody's going to know my name. That shouldn't be our motivation. Mark 4, 19, it talks about the Word of God and how different things come up to different people and cause them to go for, further or not as far. And it says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the Word and it becometh unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches can choke the word of God's effectiveness in our life and cause it to not bear any fruit. Matthew 6, verse 19, so famous here from Jesus. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It measures exactly what James was saying. And James, who we believe was the half-brother of Jesus Christ and familiar with a lot of things that he said, is pointing their remembrance back to this teaching of Jesus when Jesus said, if you lay up treasures on earth and think, this is where my hope is, this is where my security is, is in what I'm piling up. Jesus said, remember, you can lose that. It can be corrupted or stolen. And that's exactly what James says, that your wealth is corrupted and that the moths have eaten it. Let's look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 24. Jesus says, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their, fa did their fathers to the false prophets. 
Uh, Luke chapter 16, just one verse from here. Luke chapter 16 and verse 13. We read this verse Sunday in our introduction to the message about the Pharisees. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And the word there for mammon means earthly possessions, earthly goods, worldly wealth. And God says it's not possible for us to serve God and still serve our money. To put it this way, you can serve God and have money, but you can't serve money and still really be serving God the way that you should be. We should give our heart, mind, and soul to God and trust that He will take care of us. Trust that our faith can be in Him. And our peace of mind should not come from how much we have in stocks or bonds or a savings account, but rather in the fact that we are a child of God and we are His servants. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. One more passage to turn to here under this point. And uh, Rebecca, would you read verses 9 through 11? 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11. Yes. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Okay, so do you see what he's saying there? He's warning against that wanting to be rich and that many temptations and snares and things of this world will bear more heavily upon us if we happen to be rich. It may be easy to say, well, Lord, I, I think I could handle it and I sure could use the money, so can I just try? I think I could be spiritual. But you look to the people in Hollywood who have all of the fame and all of the wealth and all of the pleasure and they get sucked into a lifestyle sometimes where they're miserable and they're drug addicts and their families don't stay together because the things of this world truly do not satisfy. And the devil is a master at selling us what would not make us happy even if we had it. The devil gets us to take our mind and our eyes and put it on things that we long for and wish we could have. And the secret is if we did have them all, it would not make us happy. Judas betrayed Jesus for whatever reasons that he had, for his pride, for his being lost and being vulnerable to Satan's influence. There was a lot of reasons, but one of the things he got for betraying Jesus was 30 pieces of silver. It was money. It was valuable. He could go out and trade that to get whatever was available to buy. But as his conscience bothered him, knowing that he had betrayed the Messiah, he ran back to the priest and he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? We don't care. And he took the 30 pieces of silver that could have been used to buy whatever he wanted to, and he cast it at their feet completely dissatisfied and miserable over and wanting to get rid of that which he thought he wanted that was money. 
1 Timothy 6, 9 says, They that will be rich. And from everything I can read and the best I can tell, the sense of it is saying, They that will to be rich. They that will to be rich. That desire riches. And what does the rest of verse 9 say? Thank you. So if you desire those things and you live your life for that, you're open to the temptations of the devil and to many harmful things. The next verses that follows is one of a a statements that perplexes people often when he said the love of money is the root of all evil. I've read a lot of different things about that verse and tried to look at it. And uh, I don't really agree with him or like him on, a, on several things. But uh, John Piper, I was reading an article he wrote about that verse. And he was saying, as someone who's, he, he's someone who's not like what I would consider myself the, the received text only. Okay, he uses different text. But he said, as I've looked at the Greek and I look at how many of the, the modern translations of the Bible, they translate that to say... Um, the love of money is a root of many evils. And he said, I looked at it and I looked at it and I looked at it. And he said, the basic meaning of the Greek straightforward is the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say it's a root of many evils. And he said, perhaps in a way to, to understand the perplexity of that verse, they switched it to the love of money is a root of many evils. But what the Bible says is the love of money is the root of all evil. And his explanation was one of the best that I've ever heard because we think there's so many sinful things that people do that don't come from wanting money or loving money. So how could the love of money be the root of all evil? And he said, put it this way, the love of wanting things that are not ours or wanting to do things we should not do is the root of all evil. He said, you could, yes, the love of money, that's what it says. But what happened in Germany after World War I, when they were crushed and their economy was put down by sanctions? Overnight, it happened that it took a whole wheelbarrow of paper currency just to buy a meal or a basic item. Their paper money, the dollar bills, whatever it was that they had that they were spending, went to nothing. And it was absolutely worthless. And tomorrow, people who love money and desire money, if the U.S. dollar went to zero and it cost a bajillion dollars to buy a gallon of gas, I mean, it almost does already. But if it took more money than you could carry with you anywhere to buy a Snickers bar, the people who have their heart set on the love of money wouldn't care about that paper. It's what the paper represents. It's the power to get what you want. So he was saying you could look at it that way and say the love of money is the root of all evil, but it's the desire to get what our flesh wants that is the root of all evil. But manifested in the desire and love for that money, for gold, silver, or paper currency, for that's what allows us to buy basically anything, legal or illegal, if you have enough of it. Number one, the miseries that accompany riches. Number two, trusting in riches will condemn us. James chapter 5 now, we'll move on to verse number 3. Your gold and your silver is cankered. The word there for cankered means corroded or rusted down. 
so your gold and your silver is corroded, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. The interesting phrase there, they have hoarded and heaped together their treasure for the last days, in the last days, thinking that this money, even though they were living in, a, in the dispensation and time period between when Jesus went up to heaven, when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost and the end time judgment, the last days, rather than repenting and turning to God, they were focused on heaping up treasure. Their, their faith and trust was in their riches and not in God. And he says, you can try that, but they will rust and corrode and the rust and rotting of your riches that you will never even get to use will be a witness against you in the day when your flesh is consumed by fire. What strong words here from God. Um, I'll have y'all help me. Can someone read Zephaniah 1? Would you do that, Jason? And then, Rebecca, would you read one more passage? If you'd go to Amos 5, and I'm going to go to Job chapter 31. So we'll speed up here and get some help reading the passages. If you want, you can just listen to us read. Or if you want to try and keep up, you can. Uh, Jason, Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasted greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So see how James mirrors that Old Testament judgment pronouncement that the Jewish readers would be very familiar with from the Old Testament. And he talks about the day of the Lord, which is associated with judgment day in the Bible. And he says it's a day of darkness. And the point he's making is that it is inescapable. Then he says, neither their riches nor their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. And on the judgment day, no one will be able to say, well, my dad paid for a really, really expensive lawyer and he's going to be able to get me out of trouble. My money will be able to bribe the judge for God himself will be the judge and he's always just and there will be no bribing him. He's talking about the inescapableness of the day of the Lord and reminds them that their silver and their gold will not deliver them when that time comes. Can you read Amos 5, 18 through 20? These words always to me are a little bit chilling in the description of the day of the Lord. I don't think it mentions money here, but it mentions the day of the Lord, the darkness of it, and the fact that it is inescapable. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, 
even very dark and no brightness in it? The day of the Lord is a day of darkness and judgment, and it's inescapable. He says it's as if a man was walking in the way and met by a lion and terrified. He turned and ran from the lion and then ran directly into a bear and terrified from the bear. He ran away and finally made it into his house and, and, and uh, was breathing hard and leaned upon the wall and then looked up and saw a serpent that bit him. We know that a serpent in the Bible often alludes to Satan and judgment day here specifically in these texts. He's warning the rich people judgment day cannot be escaped and it cannot be escaped by your riches. Don't put your trust in riches or that will condemn you. Job 31, 24 through 28. Job says, if I have made gold my hope or have said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence. I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gotten much. If I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness and my heart hath been secretly enticed or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge for I should have denied the God that is above. Job was not perfect, but Job was a complete, a mature and upright man. One that feared God and eschewed evil. And in his defense of himself, he says, if... I were to rejoice because my wealth was great and then putting my confidence. If I had said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence, he said this would be an iniquity to be punished by the judge for that would be denying the God that is above. What would be denying God? Rejoicing because of our wealth and because it is great, and saying to the gold, Thou art my confidence. Our confidence is not in money, our confidence is in God. I believe in being a wise steward. I believe that in our personal finances and in the church, we should work hard and sacrifice and try to save a little bit and try to stay out of debt and do the best that we can. But tomorrow, every penny of that could be taken away. But my name is written in heaven and that cannot be taken away. And because we should not fear losing our wealth, we ultimately should not fear to say to an employer, that goes against my conscience, I won't do that. And if my revenue stream is taken away, I'll trust God to take care of me. We should not trust in riches. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. 1 Timothy 6, 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Trusting in riches can condemn our soul for all of eternity. In Matthew chapter 19, there was a rich young ruler who came to Christ and he said, good teacher, what, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And we preached through this story this year. And it was very interesting to consider all the things about it and Jesus' response. And he didn't come to him and say, Jesus, you're God. I'm a sinner. Would you tell me how I can be saved? Without even recognizing him as God, he said, good teacher, I'm good too. What good things can I do? to earn my way to heaven by the good things that I do. And Jesus told him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. He wasn't recognizing him as God when he said those things. 
And then he said, well, if you really want to do enough good to get to heaven, keep the Ten Commandments. Obey them all. And he said, oh, I've kept all of those from my youth up. The Bible tells us if he were honest, he would have been able to point to at least one time in his life when he didn't obey the Ten Commandments. He had surely fallen and tripped up and disobeyed God, but he was self-righteous. And Jesus said, okay, I have a test for you then. You really want to think that you're good enough that you've never broken my law? Take all your wealth, all your riches, sell it, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he went away, the rich young ruler did, his heart being heavy and sorrowful, for he loved his money more than he loved God. He walked up to God in the flesh and asked him the greatest question anyone could ever ask, the most important one, how do I go to heaven? Yet he walked away lost and headed for the lake of fire at that moment because he loved his possessions more than he loved God and he was trusting in his riches. Jesus turned to his disciples after that and said how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. They're mind blown with the impossibility of that statement. The disciples, when they heard it, Matthew 19, 25, they were exceedingly amazed saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's impossible in the flesh for any of us to get saved. More impossible than an actual camel passing through the eye of an actual needle. But with God this is possible. Therefore we should not hate the rich people or shun them. We proclaim the gospel to them the same as we do to the poor. But the sad truth is that far more often than the poor reject Christ, the rich do because they are comfortable in their wealth and their possessions and they're not ready to think about eternity or the needs of their soul. We'll be wrapping this up here shortly. Thank you for your attention here. I pray the Lord will help me get the rest of this across. Literally the name of an unnamed man who died and went to hell and beheld the beggar Lazarus who had sat at his gate every day begging for food. When they died, the tables were turned. The Bible chooses not to name him, but simply call him the rich man. The rich man. The rich man being in hell lifted up his eyes and said, I'm tormented in this flame. Perhaps to remind all who are rich or trusting in their riches, if they ever were to read that story, you might be a rich man or a rich woman, but one day you will die. You will face eternity. And if you don't have Christ, you will be tormented in flame. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable about a man who had all he could ever want. He had possessions in his barns in those days in Judea. Would have, the picture would have fit, were stockpiled with grain and with all of these things that would keep and that would give him provision and wealth. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I literally can't fit anymore in my barns. But instead of being satisfied, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and stuff them full with more stuff. Then I'll take my ease. Then I'll take my rest. But God said unto him, Luke 12, 20, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Jesus Christ said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? 
Revelation 3, we won't turn there for time's sake, but verse 14 through 19, the church at Laodicea, he told them that they were lukewarm, they were far from God, and God was going to spew them out of His mouth. And because they were saying to themselves, because they were rich, they thought, I'm full, I have need of nothing, I've got all I'll ever need. And then God said, but you don't even know that you're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And it's just a fact that far too often go to the richest of neighborhoods, talk to the richest of people, and they're not ready to hear about God. God have mercy on us not to lust after riches and to remember how much sorrow can actually accompany them if we do not know God and have the things that really matter. Proverbs says it's better to have a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Now, I don't know about you and what you like to eat, but if you ask me, would you like to have a dinner of herbs, you know, little plants that come up out of the ground, or do you want to eat of the stalled ox? Do you want to go to the barbecue? I'd pick the barbecue. But Proverbs says if you just had a little bit plate of herbs to eat, but there was love in your home, you're far wealthier than the person who sits down to a feast with hatred and contention each and every day. Number three, the rich were condemned for defrauding their workers. James 5 and verse number 4. I have to hurry now to, to wrap this up. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The word there for Sabaoth means hosts or armies. It's a term of saying God commands the armies of heaven. He's the general. He's in control. And the cries of the poor people who you are cheating out of what is rightfully theirs is entered into his ears. He hears their cry. The Bible says that God hears the cry of the poor. God hears the cry of the distressed, the needy, the widows, the orphans, those who are uh, oppressed and have no defense for themselves. God hears. That's why in James 1, 26 and 27, He warns them that if any man seemed to be religious and have piety, but was not able to keep their tongue from speaking sharp things and being evil and hateful, that that was not true religion. But pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. God looks out for those poor people who are trampled upon by people in positions of power. He said that they had laborers in their field. They agreed to pay them fairly and then they were cheating them and holding back their wages by fraud not agreeing to pay them a certain wage and then paying them what they agreed to work for. Rather, by fraud, they were keeping back what they should have been paid. Jason and I had a supervisor at the post office, and she knows who she is, that I'm pretty sure was trying to defraud everybody by keeping back their wages because your paycheck was always wrong, and then it had about 12 codes on it, and you didn't know what the codes meant. But I said, I knew I knew I worked more than that than what you paid me, and then you found out she paid somebody else my pay and had to fix it and all that. That's not a good feeling. But these poor people didn't have a recourse they didn't really have favor in the courts. The rich people had gone into the courts and, and influenced the judges and they were being persecuted and cheated and they had nothing to do but to cry out to God. And James said, you may be getting away with it, but God 
is the commander of armies and he has heard the cries of the people you've cheated. Number four, riches are fleeting. Verse five, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. The word therefore wanton means to live in pleasure. He said, you've had all you wanted and you've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. As in a day of slaughter. The picture there we believe of what he's talking about is he's saying you're living in pleasure, you're getting all you want, but there's slaughter maybe taking place around them, but perhaps also the word picture of the calf that would be fattened up until the day that it was cut off, that it was slaughtered, that it was sacrificed. And James uses the word slaughter to remind them you may be living in pleasure and in excess right now, but the end will come one day and the riches will be gone and judgment will be upon you. Riches are fleeting. Haggai 1, 6. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put them into a bag with holes. Especially with inflation. It feels like that. Ecclesiastes 5.10 He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Riches are fleeting. They are temporary. They are unsatisfying. If you love money and put your trust in money, money will not satisfy your desires. And Haggai says you earn wages. Here's what you really do. You earn your wages, they pay you, and you put them into a bag, but there's always holes in the bag, and it's going to get away from you. It's not going to stay with you forever. He reminds them the end will come, the riches will be gone, and there will be a day of judgment. Let me recap first quickly and then read the last verse. Number one, we see the miseries that accompany riches. Number two, trusting in riches will condemn us. Number three, the rich were condemned for defrauding their workers. Number four, riches are fleeting. And then lastly, number five, God will avenge the just people that are oppressed by the rich. Ye have condemned, verse 6, and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. They, the rich people, had not only cheated their workers, but there evidently had been just people among them who they had condemned and seen them through to their death. The story reminds me of the vineyard and uh, Jezebel and Naboth, right? It was Naboth's vineyard. He didn't do anything wrong. He simply said, I'm going to keep my vineyard, my private property that's been in my family for years. And they, Jezebel and the, gave the king the scheme to pay false witnesses and lie against him. And he was stoned and put to death. The people there had condemned and killed the just, perhaps through bribes or false witnesses. We don't really know. And those without the power to resist had not resisted. But he reminded them, God will avenge those people. God will avenge them. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, 
For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. You see how he condemned the rich people who were to face the judgment of God. Then he pivots with the verses we'll cover next week to say, therefore, be patient. Don't be frustrated. Don't think that you're lost. Rather, look and remember that like the husbandman who tends the, the vineyard, waits for the rain and the harvest, so too be patient and wait and know that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Here he draws their attention to the second coming of Christ and says that these rich people will face judgment upon the coming of God for their cheating and their murder and their blasphemy against God himself. In the book of Revelation, as the plagues are being poured out upon the earth, the Bible says that the martyrs who were killed for the name of Christ will sit under the throne of God in a special place and say, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? from those who kill innocent people who serve you. And the answer comes quickly. And God himself in the second coming will come and avenge those who have been put to death and been killed because they were his servants. And oftentimes it is rich, powerful, and wealthy people who are behind that persecution. And God will come and will address them. We're a little bit over time tonight. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with this service. I pray that the word of God would be powerful and that it would speak to our hearts and our lives, that we would be yielded to it. We pray for those who we are missing tonight and, and on the last couple of weeks from being out of town. We pray that they would be with us soon and we pray that you would bless our faithfulness. Thank you for sending us visitors on Sunday. We pray that they would come back and that you would send us more visitors that we could love and welcome into this church as we day by day try to serve you and see what your will would be for us and what you would do for us. We pray that, Lord, even upon the audio recordings and the Facebook live streams, and all the forms at which the Word of God goes out from this church, that people would hear them, that they would respond to it, and that we would be blessed. Please be with all of the requests that we had here tonight, and give each and every person a special blessing for choosing to attend the midweek Bible study. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.